I think the problem with the legal monopoly over the use of coercion in a society is that now that organization has the right to do whatever it wants. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back, friends. You've somehow found yourself listening once again, or perhaps even for the very first time, to the Lions of Liberty podcast, where I like to have conversations about the ideas of liberty. Today, of course, will be no exception. This is episode number 139. You can find the full show notes for everything we're going to discuss today over at lionsofliberty.com slash 139. We are sponsored today by our good friends at libertymaniacs.com. These guys have so much kick-ass liberty-minded gear and accessories. You'd be crazy not to check it out, especially considering that for listeners of the show, you can receive a 10% discount off your order by using the discount code LIONSOFLIBERTY. I'd also like to encourage you to learn more about an exciting alternative to the standard corporatist Obamacare insurance that is being forced upon all of us, but not all of us, because some of us have found that alternative known as health sharing. You can find out more by going over to lionsofliberty.com forward slash health. My guest today is a libertarian blogger whose work you can find at convergentinterest.liberty.me. His work has also been featured on antiwar.com. He has been a guest on the Scott Horton Show, and he's also contributed to a little-known website known as lionsofliberty.com. He and I have had many, many conversations over the past couple years on the Daily Paul, now Popular Liberty, and I'm pleased to finally speak with him, Shane Machine Riley. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Hey, Mark. How's it going? It's going great, man. And, you know, as as you know, we're no strangers to each other, really, but this is the first time we've actually spoken. So it's great to attach a voice to the name. And, um, you know, I think we both agree that a conversation on the Internet can only go so far. So it's good to actually take this to the next level and actually have a little chat here. Um, but speaking of your name, Shea Machine Riley, I know we were talking before we went on the air. That's not actually your real name. It is a pseudonym. So why don't you just tell everybody how you uh, came up with that name? Well, uh, Mark, I wouldn't call it a pseudonym. It is, it is a real name of sorts. It's, wasn't, it wasn't my given name, but it's a name I grew up with. Seamusheen actually is a diminutive form of uh, the name, the Irish name Seamus. And the Irish, they like to kind of throw een onto the end of everything the same way that we would throw e onto the end of names. So, like, for example, you would be Marky, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm not sure if I'm going to go with my Irish name just yet. <laughs> Oh, Marky boy, how are you? That's my terrible Irish accent. I apologize for it. Yeah, that was that was great. So yeah, uh, shame machine, shaming, uh, kind of the same way that Jamesy or Jimmy in uh, American. The, that Seamus would be the Irish form of James. It's like the the friendly uh, colloquial version of the Seamus name. Yep, that's right. Cool, man. So how did you first get into all this stuff? How did you first get involved and interested in the ideas of liberty, which you and I have spent many, many hours and hours discussing on on the Daily Paul and now on Popular Liberty, as well as in many other forums, including this one? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I got into liberty when, probably in high school, I was never really satisfied with some of the inconsistencies of political philosophy, uh, you know, the way that we have the left and right divided, they're certainly inconsistent, even in their own on their own terms. Uh, and so I always noticed that. And then uh, I didn't really know who I identified with. It wasn't until a friend of mine in my senior year of high school 
said, well, why don't you just call yourself a libertarian? And I didn't know, I didn't know anything about libertarianism. I didn't know what that meant. And so I looked it up and I was interested, but it didn't seem like it was very attainable. And what I guess what I mean is that if I wanted to do something uh, in terms of politics, I didn't really feel like libertarianism was an avenue that I could take, even though it, it spoke to me pretty well. Um, I spent a lot of time out to sea in my adult life, working on ships, and I had a lot of time to <laughs> kind of catch up on some reading, philosophy and stuff like that. And it wasn't until I kind of ran into classical liberalism, as expressed by the founders, that I really started getting the idea, uh, you know, kind of coming to a cohesive framework of the way that society should organize itself. And I'm talking about natural law, you know, the idea that we shouldn't give any rights to an organization in society that the individual citizens in society don't have. And so it was kind of when I came to that conclusion that I realized that I was not working in any framework I had ever really been exposed to. Um, however, because I limited myself to exposure, I didn't really run into the ideas of liberty as conceived by, you know, the great libertarians that always come up in shows like these Murray Rothbard and, and Ron Paul until I was exposed to Ron Paul during the 2012 election. And that was a story. Was he totally under the radar for you in that first run in 2007, 2008? Were you just kind of off the political radar or did he just, did he just not catch your attention at the time? Well, no, you know, I was out in the middle of the ocean, <laughs> Mark. So I wasn't really. That, that'll uh, do it. <laughs> yeah. I knew what was going on and I, and I would listen to him talk about the Constitution. And this is back in 2008, 2009. And I remember saying to myself, well, that's archaic. And in my, in my mind, what I was saying is, I appreciate the way he's going. That's the direction that I would like to see us go. But really, that's not far enough for me. I had already made that decision up in my mind. Um, I didn't realize that his, his own personal philosophical background went way further than I could ever, ever imagine myself going. But it was a, it was a 2012 election and watching the way that he got, he, he was completely undermined. That made me look into him. And then I was introduced to, I think I, I watched Lou Rockwell give an interview and then I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this guy's saying this. And then, you know, Mises Institute and then that was it for me. And say what you will about Lou Rockwell. I don't always agree with him, but uh, there's no doubt he says things that make the average person go, someone's really saying this? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Someone's really saying these things on a podcast interview or the radio or wherever he appears. He's very bold in, in the kinds of things he'll say, and he's not afraid to say things that will clearly ruffle feathers. No, and he's really casual about it, too. That, I think that was, that was the treat for me, was to kind of hear him say it in, in this really you know, kind of calm and understated way. Uh, some really radical ideas. Let's talk more about natural law as sort of the basis for rights. That's an area, while we may disagree on some intricacies, that you and I are definitely um, in sync with. So what really uh, you know, brought you to natural law? Was there a specific uh, book or specific you know, philosopher that influenced you in that way? Well, it was, it was my introduction to the ideas of the founders. Um, I, read, uh, I read so many biographies. It would be impossible to explain it just in terms of... Uh, one particular idea or philosopher uh, for me that that kind of drove me in that direction, um, but it was it was the founders, it was the conception of the Constitution, it was understanding of constitutionalism, and really its place in history. I think it made more sense to me because I had a background 
in the history of the previous years that I was able to see what a radical political ideology constitutionalism was in the uh, in the late 17th century, uh, which is when it was really coming into its own, culminating in the American Revolution and the adoption of the United States Constitution, or really the, the Articles of Confederation, uh, I would say would be the culmination of, of the Enlightenment into the birth of, of a new nation. Sure, that's such a great point that, I mean, many people might not realize, especially like even yourself said, oh, the, at one point you thought the Constitution was just archaic. But I mean, if you want to natural law, these ideas, these go back well before the Constitution. And many people don't realize that a lot of these founding documents about the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Constitution, these are really based at their core, even if we can find many areas where they diverge, you know, it, you know, in going down the line. And there are certainly parts of the Constitution that don't really exactly line up with with a good conception of natural law. But that is the basis for these documents, the, the idea that the individual has self-ownership, that the individual has rights. And that all does stem from ideas that came about in the Enlightenment, ideas concerning natural law and natural rights. Obviously, most of the people in our society don't really have a conception of natural law or natural rights, but uh, it is part of the conversation we always try to, to bring into things. I think it's maybe the most important thing to, to really you know, teach people about. So what do you say to people that just outright reject this idea of natural law, of natural rights? They'll say, well, that's a nice little concept that you think everybody's you know, an individual and every, an individual has rights, but well, if other people don't believe it, then it doesn't really matter. That's true. If other people if other people don't believe it, it doesn't really matter. And that's kind of where I'm at right now in my own philosophical journey. First of all, I don't know if I've ever come into someone who who says, no, there aren't any individual human rights. I think that most people would agree that it's just or fair to treat other people a certain way. It's the way that they see that manifested, and it's the institution of the state and before you know libertarians hear the word the state they automatically assume the worst that's not really what i'm talking about i'm talking about the state in terms of 17th century political philosophy right um the tradition of the social democrats or you know going back as far as plato people saw the state as a manifestation of a collective effort by individuals in a society to govern themselves. And so they're not necessarily rejecting the ideas of natural law or individual rights, but they've conceived those ideas in a different way than strict individualism. And that's really, I think, I think a lot of libertarians don't spend enough time understanding that because it's so antithetical to our own belief system that we can't see it as any sort of cohesive ideology. But the fact is, it is a cohesive ideology. It has intellectual roots that are even older than individualism, historically speaking, in terms of the discussions that we have on record. The ideas of society as a state or as the polis, right, um, go back as far as Plato, and the institution goes back as far as recorded history. Absolutely. So, when you're discussing natural law and natural rights, what, what do you, you typically point people to first in terms of when they want to learn more? Maybe they're, they're sort of on board with the idea. They, they get what you're saying, but they just don't have that, that sort of foundation on yourself. Would you point them to stuff that you've read regarding the founders? Or have you found any sort of more cohesive sort of layout of it um, that you would actually just point people to like a certain book or a certain article or that kind of thing? Well, I think, I think the best way to approach people, especially people who, who 
don't agree with the basic principles that I, I've adopted for myself. I think uh, the best way to introduce them to the idea of natural law is looking at the state as an, as an organization in society who, who has the authority, um, the legitimate right to do things to individuals in society that other individuals don't have the right to do to each other. And I think that's probably the most basic way to describe the state and introduce the idea of individual rights and natural law. Um, that being said, that in and of itself doesn't get you as far as private property libertarianism, because there are still some issues uh, that go back as far as the earliest anarchist philosophers who aren't reconciled by just that ideology. And in fact, there have been numerous societies um, in, in history that have been discovered by anthropologists, uh, some historians, although there's a lot less on the, on the written record about these societies, but there, there have been societies nonetheless that function on a basis where there is no public enforcement of the law. There is a law and everyone in society has to follow it. And it's not necessarily a libertarian law that people are following, but these societies do exist where, you know, certain principles, certain first principles, uh, cultures have adopted and the legal system has kind of grown up organically around it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you're referring to, I guess, like ancient Ireland and other societies like that, I presume. And then do you think that the reason that they were able to function in that way is because people and individuals in those societies actually already had this sort of conception this of individual rights, even if they didn't maybe call it that or they didn't call it natural rights, natural law. But clearly the people in a certain society, any society, have to have a certain set of views that are at least closely valued together in order to have some sort of cohesive enforcement of a natural law, whether it's done through some sort of formal code or what have you, which a lot of libertarians might reject, or whether it's simply done through the, the natural organic process of sort of, uh, I guess, what you might call common law. Yeah, and Ireland is a good example. There are actually a lot better examples in, in modern anthropology. So uh, Papua New Guinea, there are certain Native American cultures in, the, uh, in Central America and the Amazon that have systems of, of pretty organic law that kind of develops from the ground up. And then, of course, you know, like, you know, the classic libertarian examples of private property law, Iceland and Ireland, and those examples are good, too. But if we talk about Iceland, which is the one that comes up, I think, most often, it's important to recognize that the Icelanders, they weren't following libertarian, anarcho-capitalism, libertarian natural law. They had legal devices in society to punish people for not being able or not being there to serve their, their fellow man. And it's really interesting to see how something like that can develop. Because if we talk about natural law, the conversation immediately shifts to morality. And then it becomes a question of whether or not it's moral to do this or moral to do that. It's, it's moral to deprive someone of their property. But at the same time, I think you and I would both agree that it's, it's immoral to a certain degree to leave a baby lying in a gutter. I'm on board with that. It's definitely, it's definitely immoral to me. Right. And so the question is, well, do we have a just or, in, in this case, legal obligation to rescue the baby from the gutter? And I think that mm, we do, per possibly. I, it's hard for me to say 
because I, I do have such strong convictions in that sense. But again, how would something like that be be punished? Could you have laws like that without an organization in society who has territorial monopoly on law and justice? Sure. And that's the that's the argument that guys like Austin Peterson will use. They'll they'll come up with this one crazy scenario like, you know, not feeding the baby or, or throwing someone out of the hot air balloon and then say because they can't comprehend how, how that might be enforced under, you know, a perceived version of libertarianism or anarcho-capitalism or what have you. And then they'll come out and say, therefore, we need a coercive government to do all these other things or, you know, handle these basic things because otherwise babies and gutters everywhere. Right. And it's and so the you know, the best way to refute that is show one single example of how that's not true. And if we use ancient or Commonwealth period Iceland, for example, we can show that there were laws in place to protect orphans who lost their parents. The neighboring community members had obligations to take in those orphans, to provide for them for periods of time. Each community member was obligated to kind of shift responsibility back and forth as was designated by the legal code. And it was enforceable by the orphan taking those people to uh, a community court and accusing them of committing the crime of not harboring them. Um, There are other examples in the same legal system where farmers who completely lose their farm or even people whose crops have been devastated, where they get the same legal protection, right, of their community members taking care of them. But the beauty of the system was that they were responsible for A, bringing the people to court, and B, and having seeing the law enforced. And so it's not a state. It really isn't, not in any traditional sense. This is really interesting to me. I never heard this sort of example. So the, like farmers, if they just you're saying if they lost their crops due to some sort of natural disaster or just bad luck or what have you, they could actually the, the, their community was sort of obligated to to assist them. Is that what you're saying? Man? Yeah, basically, they had uh, what could be loosely considered territorial associations. And the people who lived inside a given territory, and I don't have the, uh, the language on hand. I wish I wish I was more prepared for, for this discussion. Come on, man. So unprepared for this talk. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So, no, they, they, had, they had these territorial communities where the people inside the community were obligated in certain cases to, to, you know, to provide for their neighbors under, under extreme circumstances. And really – these circumstances, they don't cause me to, they don't give me, I, I don't have a visceral reaction to hearing that, oh my God, a community member had to take care of an orphan. You know, it doesn't bother me. I think the problem with the legal monopoly over the use of coercion in a society is that now that organization has the right to do whatever it wants. And no matter what way you slice it, that's what you get. And so I think that introducing people to these instances would kind of take you I think that it would give maybe, I don't know, be a good segue into the conversation of, well, okay, what are our rights going to be? Okay, I got the, I got the whole, we're not going to have a legal monopoly over the use of violence in society. Let's talk about what, what the rules are going to be. And then the question gets into property. In my view, what you're kind of describing is sort of the city-state principle that, that we've discussed before. I mean, there's nothing 
you know, wrong about people coming together in a community in a certain geographic area and agreeing to certain things, agreeing to certain rules. And, you know, and one of those rules might be, all right, if there's an orphan, we're all going to chip in and take care of them. And, or if your farm has a bad crop and the locusts come in this year, we're all going to help you out. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when people take that theoretical concept and then just blindly sort of apply it to one organization and say, all right, you guys, you separate guys kind of have different rights than us. You all get to decide what we're obligated to do. And that that's really the difference I see in a, on a very basic level. It's its the difference between we agree as opposed to you tell us what, what we have to agree to, if that makes sense. Right, right, right. And so the, you know, the, the way that we've developed, the way that societies have developed, um, again, going back to constitutionalism in the 1700s, uh, we, we conceived of this idea of the republic. Um, I mean, and obviously there were republics going f- much farther back, but, but really the idea of the, the constitutional republic, the idea that that state does not have any right whatsoever. So we adopted the notion of the, the republic from the, the Romans, but then we applied this sort of constraint on it. And we thought that was going to do, but the problem was that's still not, that's still not addressing the real issue, right? Because the real issue isn't whether or not we're democratically represented or what have you. The real issue is whether or not any organization in society has the right to abuse us in ways that we're not allowed to deal with each other or interact with, obviously with, with that organization. And so I, I think historically it made sense that we moved in that direction because that's what we had. But I think we're at a point now where we can start looking at at ways to move forward. I wonder if you have any thoughts on kind of, I don't know, where our our society, I hate using terms like our and society as a libertarian, because I mean, yes, I respect that we're all individuals, but it's very clear that society as a whole in the past couple hundred years has really in many ways, diverted from this original concept that the founders had regarding individual rights, uh, basing government on the idea of the individuals, even if maybe in practice they weren't really doing that. Why do you think that, do you think it's just like a sort of a lack of philosophy or, or bad schooling? I mean, why do you think that, that people's ideas politically have gotten so far away from that? Well, I, th- I think one of the major reasons is because there have been other political philosophies that are coherent and that involve systems of, of natural rights that just don't or at least maybe not natural rights, but first philosophical principles that are antithetical to ours. And so I keep on bringing it back to property, and I'm always going to bring it back to property because property is, like in history, we discover government moments after we discover the, the first property owners, right? Whenever human beings were able to produce enough to where we had an overabundance of what we had as a society people started t- staking claims to that, right? And, and so the government kind of is introduced alongside the institution of property. And really that was the major dispute that the early anarchist thinkers had with the, the way the system had developed up until that point. Because the way that they saw it, property was acquired by the feudal system unjustly through conquest and military might and everyone else was kind of left with the scraps and fell under the jurisdiction of the, of the Lords of the land. Um, and so they had an aversion to the way the system was, but they took it a step further. They had an aversion to the institution of property 
in its essence. Um, we as libertarians tend to automatically assume the premise that we are entitled to justly acquired property. But if we take it a step back, what are we really saying when we say that we are entitled to justly acquired property? What we're saying is we're entitled to use violence against people who don't honor our claim to resources naturally found in the earth. And so when you think about it in that way, well, then we're the aggressor in that situation. If, if the premise isn't accepted that property ownership is, is just and valid. Right. And, and everyone is going to see others as aggressors. That's kind of the situation we're in right now, where you, where we don't have a good conception of property. So much of our land, so much of our, our people's businesses even are seen as sort of property of the public. And then whenever anybody doesn't like what they're seeing on someone's property, if it's even if it's just something silly, like not wanting to bake a cake for someone's wedding, or they don't like how the public square in their town is used, now it just becomes this battle where everyone sees each other as the aggressor because they're all fighting over these ideas of property, but nobody really has the conception of property in the first place. So they're not really fighting over property. They're just fighting over what they feel is right or wrong in a certain situation. Yeah, or what they feel they have they have access to, you know. So if let, let's say I stake a claim to uh, a piece of land, I build a fence around it, or you know, I plant a I plant a field of crops on it. Am I entitled to that land? Now we can go into the nuances and kind of come up with a system, right, that makes sense. But we always assume the premise. We always assume the premise that we are entitled to this type of ownership. But Let's say someone else comes in and says, well, I think I'm entitled to this type of ownership just by virtue of me being here. Or I feel like I'm entitled to this type of ownership just by virtue of me being able to see it. And so now we are fighting over, we're fighting over control of these resources. And again, before we had enough resources to fight over, we didn't even have a state. And, and so that's, that's like what a lot of people don't understand. Um, and now when it comes to social democracy, and in the Rousseauian sense, what they're trying to do is they're trying to come to terms with this reality. Rousseau himself was a, a fierce, fierce opponent, opponent of the idea of property. Um, well, and maybe not necessarily an opponent of, of the idea, but he was very angry with it. He didn't like the fact that it came into existence, despite the fact that it granted us a, a, an a, incredible amount of wealth. He always kind of looked back, and that was the idea of the Rousseauian noble savage, was that we're all, you know, we all just live in, in Earth's abundance, and we pick the fruit off the trees, and everyone's kind to each other because we don't have anything to fight over. But property, he was really mad with that. So what he did instead was he said, well, this is how we're going to come to terms with property. We're going to put it into the hands of the consensus, right? And so that was his method of dealing with, with the problem of one person promising violence if another person utilizes resources that he feels belong to him. And that's what our current system is born out of. I don't think a lot of people realize, everyone wants to associate, and it's hilarious because they're so wrong, so incredibly wrong. Everyone wants to associate the socialism that we experience from the left today in the United States with Marx. That is absurd and, and couldn't be more incorrect. Um, it's a completely Rousseauian idea. It was born out of the, the social contract that he conceived of in the same in, in the same kind of constitutionalism that he advocated for. Um, Shane Machine, it's really funny how these interviews work sometimes because I, I have a series of notes 
put down and, and topics we could talk about for our interview here. And the first one's natural law, and we're, we're still on it. And we could probably stay on it for hours and hours and hours. But I do want to briefly touch upon um, your article that we published earlier this summer over at Alliance of Liberty. It was also published at antiwar.com, and it also got you an appearance on our good friend Scott Horton's show. So why don't you tell us about the premise of this article? It's entitled The Ugly Truth About ISIS, A New Area of Global Terrorism. Why don't you try to sum that up for people, and we'll, of course, post that in the show notes for the show as well. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I've heard, I've been paying very close, close attention to the different terrorism cases, the different anti-terrorism cases that have been brought against people here in the United States. And for a long time, uh, I kind of noticed what everyone else who's paying attention to anything noticed, which is that it's a lot of bogus sting operations that end up getting people who, who don't, I mean, I don't want to say they're, they don't know any better. I mean, we're all human beings. We're responsible for actions, but they end up getting kind of taken advantage of in a way that it makes it very easy for them to be targeted. And I, you know, I was, I was on board with that idea and I kind of expected that anytime I saw a terrorism case that I was just going to see more of the same until a couple of months ago when I was, uh, perusing the Twitter feed and I saw that uh, a, a really good journalist by the name of Mitchell Prothero had had posted an article about how a anti-terrorism expert here in the United States, Jan Berger, was saying there's more to come on this lone wolf terrorism stuff here in the United States. And I didn't I don't take Jan Berger's word for anything because he's an expert. And so that means that he's really just a media shill. But. I do trust the word of Mitchell Prothero, and he wrote the article. And so I ended up getting into a Twitter debate with him on it, where he said, you know what? I hear what you're saying. Just be cool. And I was like, you know what? Okay, I trust you, and I'm going to be cool, and I'm going to watch this. And I did. And within the next couple of months, man, it was just one after the other of cases that were people that were trying to go over, uh, trying to fight in the jihad and they just did not have the same modus operandi as the people that we were used to seeing getting stung and entrapment jobs by the FBI here in the United States. Yeah, it's, it's no longer just the, uh, just the, the silly, you know, Rastafarian Patsy who stumbled onto some, you know, Muslim website and then suddenly he's being trained by the FBI. There is actual people that are literally actually trying to learn terrorist tactics to use against the United States due to this radicalization. Yeah, and exactly. And so, you know, I think what drove me to write the article was just the way that I had witnessed this whole thing develop because ISIS has been the topic of conversation ever since they stormed Mosul. Now, for people like you and me, we've known about ISIS for for 4 years now because that's <laughs> those those are the people in the in the Syrian revolution that everyone was uh, claiming were going to fight for human rights in Syria and overthrow the government of Assad. And so when the government shifted its narrative using ISIS as the bogeyman, I, you know, I immediately, it immediately drew my attention and I watched it develop and I watched to see how they took advantage, just completely took the media for everything it was worth uh, in the United States by using the exposure to radicalize people all over the world. And they did it and it happened. And I, I just had to I just had to remind everyone that was paying attention that ISIS, you know, the way the Rand Paul put it uh, on that interview on Morning Joe, you know, the uh, ISIS is stronger, I think, because of the hawks in my party or, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, 
that was a that was an understatement. If anything, Rand's known for its understatements, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but but it wasn't just the Hawks. It wasn't just the Hawks in his party or in the Democrat party because they're one and the same in this regard. Talking about ISIS, um, but it was the media. It was the media just just blasting it all over the airwaves every day for years. And where were they a month before ISIS sacked Mosul? There was no difference in ISIS the day before they sacked Mosul and the day after, except that the entire nation's media had their attention at that point. That was the only difference. There was still they were still going around killing everybody. They were chopping off heads. They were, uh, I mean, <laughs> it, it's really it's really silly that the U.S. media so quickly shifted their narrative to address something that had had existed that they had been outright ignoring for three years prior. And then to see the devastation that it wreaked, not only in Syria and in Iraq, but, you know, even here at home to watch these people get radicalized. Because like I said on the Scott Horton show, um, it's people don't get radicalized by, by radical Islam. They get radicalized by troubled childhoods, and hard times and maybe abusive lives as they're kind of coming coming of age. And then they see something like ISIS and that gives them direction. That gives them something to be radicalized for. And then they have an excuse to go out and act violently against, against other people. And so it was the exposure to that kind of thing, I think, that drove uh, a week later after, after the article was posted, um, Mohammed Youssef, I can't remember uh, his last name, but uh, the guy who attacked, was it Tennessee? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, and the, the guy who attacked in Tennessee. And what was his MO? If you just look at what he, what he had dealt with in his life and then his exposure to all of the, all of the different uh, media narrative of ISIS and the, and the fight against the U.S. against radical Islam, and, and it just gave him the excuse. And the, the problem is radical Islamists or any kind of terrorist in this country, whether it be a, a, you know, a, a white you know, suburban kid with a Confederate flag and a, and a pistol or a, a Muslim American who, got, who went over to Syria and saw the carnage over there or uh, you know, a black gangbanger on the street in New York, uh, any kind of terrorism isn't going to do the type of damage that the retaliation for it is going to do because they don't just take it out on the people conducting the crimes. They take it out on all of us. And that's the real, that's the real problem with it all. Well, Shamashin, I think that article is a very important work. Again, we will link to that in the show notes for the show. And uh, before I let you go, why don't we just, um, I kind of plug some of your stuff at the top there. So I'll let you, you take it home at the bottom. Why don't you just plug all the places people can find your writing. And um, I don't know, let us know. Do you have anything else? Uh, Anything in the woodwork you're, uh, you got coming soon? Well, yeah. Um, you, you can find my articles on my blog, convergentinterest.liberty.me. And uh, right now I'm working on an article that uh, hoping to see published on, on various sources, maybe even Lines of Liberty, if uh, they so honor me with that distinct pleasure. Um, I'm working on a, an article talking about the petrodollar myth. There's... Uh, there's a little bit of misinformation going on about the petrodollar and the, and the role that it plays in U.S. foreign policy. And uh, I, I wrote an article on it uh, last month, and I've just been so crazy that I wasn't able to clean it up and publish it in time for it to kind of uh, fit in with what was going on. But I don't know, with the way the stock market's starting to turn and 
all the different things going on around the world. It, it'll probably come up again soon. But uh, that's that's going to be my next article. I'll publish it there and uh, hopefully see it published on all the sites that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and luckily for you, I just happen to know a guy at Lions of Liberty, so I think we might, might be able to make that happen. Uh, Shane Machine Riley, it's been a pleasure, and uh, you know we've only scratched the surface on a lot of the stuff we've talked about. Uh, well, not offline, off of this podcast, and uh, you know there's definitely plenty of material for us to talk about in future shows going forward. So we definitely look forward to hearing more from you, and I wish you the best of luck with everything you got going on. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mark. It was a it was a real pleasure. Thanks, Shane Machine. We'll talk to you soon. All right, I hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with good old Seamus Ian Riley, a fine young chap who likes to talk liberty. And I apologize to my Irish friends or just people that uh, normally enjoy impressions that have to deal with my crappy Irish accent, but it just comes out on my own. You know, I have very little control over what comes out of my mouth sometimes. Probably not a good characteristic for a podcast host, but... We soldier on anyway. And, you know, stay tuned for my thoughts on this interview in the last roar in just a moment. First, I need to do a solid to our sponsors and let you know about all the cool Liberty gear available at LibertyManiacs.com. What better way to get a conversation going like the one I just had with Seamus Ian Riley today than by wearing a shirt that might catch the eye of someone? Maybe you're at a party and someone sees your ready for oligarchy shirt like I have myself. A shirt that Hillary Clinton's campaign, by the way, is attempting to sue our friend Dan McCall over. But have no fear. He's defeated the NSA, the CAA. He's got this one in the bag. You can perhaps fool your progressive friends for a moment when they catch that shirt in the corner and think you might be a Hillary Clinton fan until they get a little closer and say, wait, what's this oligarchy thing? Before you know it, you're having a great conversation about the ideas of liberty. You can head on over to our affiliate page directly at libertymaniacs.com slash pages slash lions or just go and use the discount code lionsofliberty at checkout. And guys, if you follow the headlines, as I know you guys do, you may have seen that health insurance premiums are set to rise once again by some estimates by up to 50%. And if you're like me and purchase your own health insurance, you're experiencing a serious case of Obamacare sticker shock and it's about to get worse. But there is a way to control the cost, and that is by rejecting the current health insurance system altogether and joining up with a health sharing plan through our friends at Health Excellence Select. And I know this is true. I know this because I did it myself. With Health Excellence Select, you have all the tools you need to control your own health care and to do so without breaking the bank. How on earth is this possible? Well, there's one way to find out, guys, and that's to head on over to lionsofliberty.com health. Now, guys, it was great to finally speak to good old Shea Machine Riley. He's someone whose views I have respected over the years. And it's great that we have websites like PopularLiberty.com, formerly The Daily Paul, where we can discuss what I find to be very important issues, such as natural rights, natural law theory. And, you know, a big criticism I get when spending so much time talking about this stuff Mostly from non-libertarians, sometimes from libertarians as well. Is now, oh, you guys, you libertarians, you're always just harping on about theory. All your theories about rights, yada yada yada. But it doesn't apply to the real world. We need solutions. But you can't have solutions, guys, without addressing the root of the problem. And as far as I can tell, the root of most of our problems in our society, at least when it comes to law and government and all the issues we have there is a poor examination of philosophy where people are lacking a true intellectual look at what is right and what is wrong and how we can arrive at these ideas through looking at the world around us through using reason to determine what constitutes a right, what constitutes a crime. 
It sounds so simple, and in many ways it should be, but to actually break this stuff down isn't so simple. Now, when most people, like the critic I just mocked there, are are harping on about solutions, what they're really asking for when they say, forget your rights theories, I want solutions, they don't want solutions. That's not what really what they want. They want fixes. That's a big difference. Now, look, if I have an old crappy plumbing system in my house and it's falling apart, I might be able to plug some leaks here and there. I might be able to take the gum out of my mouth and plug a little leak. Oh, and another leak springs up. I can plug that one, too. But these aren't solutions to the problem, you see. These are just little fixes, which might get you through, you know, one little crisis. It might get you through the night, but these leaks are going to spring again. You're going to see it spring somewhere else. I can go out and argue that marijuana should be legalized. That's a fix to one problem. That's a fix to a major problem where many, many tens of millions of users are using this plant that harms no one and they're being put in jail for it. Now, luckily, this is something that is changing all across the country. We've, we've talked about this several times on this show. The amazing movement that's being made in the war on marijuana specifically, uh, in some ways in the larger war on drugs. I can go out and argue for this fix, and I will, and I can do that without harping on about natural rights theories. I can even use some utilitarian arguments from time to time and show people how alcohol is much more dangerous, and yet that's not illegal. I can show people how marijuana has medical uses for many people, and why would you keep medicine from people? I can do all that stuff, and we might win on marijuana. We're certainly winning in many states. We've totally won in Colorado, totally won in Washington. Well, maybe not totally. They're still regulating it and taxing it a bit. There's ways it can be improved, for sure, but that's not the point. The point is the idea shifted so much in one direction that we actually saw a change in the law, a law that was finding many people in jail who now will not be in jail. Now, that's, that's a positive. But it, it's not a solution. It's a fix, you see, because we're still going to see that leak spring somewhere else in some other law when people are being put in jail for some other substance. If we're going to have a solution to the larger issue, the larger issue is that, you know, the idea that people should be attacked or jailed simply for owning a plant or a substance, whatever that plant may be, even if it doesn't have medicinal uses. The idea that people should be jailed who have harmed no other person, well, that takes more than an easy fix, more than changing one law here or there, more than, you know, making some minor utilitarian argument about the use of a specific plant. This takes a shift in the philosophical outlook of the majority of people, or at least a good majority of people in our society. And to really get that kind of shift in a philosophical outlook, well, how are you going to do that without focusing on philosophy, without focusing on rights theories? The term rights theory might sound boring to a lot of people, but uh, it's not boring to me. <laughs> I wouldn't do a podcast twice a week about it. I wouldn't have founded lionsofliberty.com with some great like-minded friends of mine. That's what our goal is. It's not just to get a fix in the law here and there. It's to really change the view of our fellow man and how they view the use of force through the political system on their fellow man. That's what really ultimately has to change. That's where we have to see a larger shift in order to have real solutions and not just fixes here and there. That's why we do this. That's why we keep these conversations going. That's why I've spent so much time at popularliberty.com, at dailypaul.com, before it, having these great conversations. That's why I now spend so much time over on Facebook at the Lions of Liberty Forum, where I would like to invite you guys to join the conversation as well. Because I know if you've made it this far, you're interested in this conversation. Or you just fell asleep and maybe you woke up to me still, still yapping on about rights and stuff. But come on, find us on Facebook. I will, of course, include the link to that group over in the show notes, lionsofliberty.com slash 139. But you can easily search us on Facebook. Just ask to join the group. It is a private group, but I will immediately approve you and let you on in. 
and then we can have a nice, unfiltered, unfettered conversation on the old Facebook, monitored by our good friend Mark Zuckerberg, the NSA, whoever else is listening. You can listen to this show in many ways. I don't know what way you're listening right now. You might be listening on iTunes. If so, head on over. Hit that subscribe button. That's a huge help to us. Go over, give us a rating, and give us a review. These are ways you can really help the show be more prominently featured on iTunes, get in front of more people, help us expand and grow. You can also follow us on our social media. You can find us at the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can also find our main Facebook page where we post all of our articles and podcasts at facebook.com slash lionsofliberty. You can follow us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. And, of course, there are many other ways you can hear us. On the radio, libertytalk.fm. You can hear us every single Saturday and Sunday, 6 p.m. Eastern. You can also hear us throughout the week on the Liberty Radio Network at lrn.fm. So many ways you can hear the show. Now, next week, as you know... It's political season. It's that time of year. We've got another GOP debate coming up. Now, last time we did a short turnaround reaction show the very next day. We're not going to be able to do that this week because, well, we're busy people. Can't always get the whole crew together to, you know, to watch a two-hour debate and do a reaction show right after. So we're not going to have that specific format next week. But we are going to be looking at political stuff. And, of course, it's going to start with the return of our semi-regular feature. I'm going to be joined by our Rand Paul analyst, the one and only Brian McWilliams for another edition of Rand Paul Lusses and Minuses. Rand Paul Lusses and Minuses. That's this coming Monday. And then next Thursday, I'm going to be joined once again by a man who I've interviewed on this show before. A man who has done his fair share of interviews, many of which are with candidates that are now running for president. And that, of course, is the Socratic interviewer himself, Jan Helfeld. Next Thursday, I'll be joined by Jan Helfeld to break down the 2016 candidates, uh, his analysis of guys like Donald Trump, and as well as looking at some interviews he's done with guys like Ben Carson, Rick Santorum, Bernie Sanders. We're going to get his view on everybody running in the race. And until next week, folks, live long and live free. Mastery is John Dobbins.